Hello, greetings everyone. I'm David Bear and uh, this is Bear Talk. The theme for today is going to be complicity and evil and sort of what the question is, what, what drives people to cooperate with evil? Uh, what, what are the circumstances that bring them to do this? And so to consider this question, I want to consider this question through the lens of uh, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, because that's a very uh, sort of poignant and intense way of trying to get at this question. And so I've, I've assembled another panel uh, to discuss this with me. Once again, I have Alex Faludi, uh, who is a uh, living in Budapest, is a journalist and church historian. And then I have uh, Robert Erickson, the Kurt Mayer Chair in Holocaust uh, Studies Emeritus from Pacific Lutheran University. He's also the author of um, uh, well, very well-praised book, Theologians Under Hitler, and more recently, uh, Complicity in the Holocaust. Um, so, both of you guys, thanks for coming on my on my podcast show. Good to be here. Um, thanks for the invitation. The, the immediate occasion for the idea was that Alex had written an article, uh, I guess, on the 60th anniversary of the um, uh, trial of Adolf Eichmann. And it was very interesting because, uh, of course, many people know that Hannah Arndt wrote, the, wrote this uh, study of a report on the trial of, of uh, Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a controversial book. So I thought maybe we'd start to try to get to this question. I'd start by asking Alex a little bit. Maybe you could just sort of summarize the well. T- review quickly who Adolf Eichmann was in case there are people who don't remember all the details listening to this, and, and then maybe just kind of go review the, ar- uh, the argument that you make in that article. Thank you, David. Yes, so Eichmann um, was a lieutenant colonel in the SS. He was the head of uh, the Jewish Affairs Section of the Reich Security Main Office, and he was the uh, logistical coordinator um, uh, uh, for the uh, for the Holocaust for the um, uh, for the final solution um, in uh, Central, Western, and Southern Europe, and uh, 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 Eichmann um, uh, uh, was apprehended. Uh, he, he escaped at the end of the war to South America, as, as many former Nazis did, and was apprehended um, in a Mossad operation. Uh, in in 1960 and and brought to Jerusalem uh, uh, for trial because he'd his, his sort of very significant role in making the Holocaust happen um, had been known for some time and at the trial uh, he was uh, observed by Hannah Arendt but not to be fair not only by Hannah Arendt by other observers too um, as as presenting the demeanour not of someone you would expect to have coordinated um, mass murder on this gigantic scale. He he appeared like a sort of um, slightly inadequate uh, second-tier bureaucrat. Um, and uh, as Arendt uh, says, uh, 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 you know, he seemed not to be a monster, but it was hard to believe that he wasn't a fool. And... Uh, uh, she um, she comes up with this this phrase for uh, describing him uh, the banality of evil. Um, now the, the problem, and, and she even says that he, he had no real motives apart from the bureaucratic ones of seeking promotion, wanting to please his boss and be esteemed by colleagues. She she even says that he clearly wasn't an anti-Semite. Um, uh, uh, the problem uh, with this was that um, uh, he, it was it was a rather extraordinary act, um, as uh, subsequent uh, material, uh, including interviews he'd given in South America to uh, Nazi sympathisers and um, uh, 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 diaries and so on, revealed um, his, his strategy in the courtroom had been uh, the old one of uh, "be smart, play dumb." Um, and, and in fact, there was this rabid um, uh, anti-Semitism below the surface, um, a, a desire uh, to, uh, as, as he said, rid, rid the world of the um, uh, greatest and, uh, in, intelligence that it had ever seen, the greatest pernicious intelligence it had ever seen in the form of the Jewish people in his estimation. And 
um, a, 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 also a, a greatly calculating one that had um, been both ingenious in the methods it devised and had been not afraid to disobey orders. Um, uh, uh, there was no sort of moral automatism, uh, moral automation, automatism. Um, and, and so what I sort of argue in, in the article is that the way that Arendt combines her analysis of Eichmann with some of her earlier work on the nature of totalitarianism um, and in the way that human subjectivity and conscious moral consciousness uh, um, uh, uh, can be can be warped um, so that people lose agency um, didn't really hold together um, but that it was a plausible and understandable mistake because um, Eichmann had been amongst those who had distorted others and knew how to pretend to be someone whose moral agency had been distorted and taken away. Uh, um, uh, 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 so she was sort of wrong for the right reasons. Um, that, that's the argument in, in the article. Um, I, I'm not sure I would quite put it in those ways, having read Robert's book, well, but I will pull it back because I've spoken for a long time. Don't pull it back. You're stuck with it. You said it now. You, uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't mean Robert... Did you want to jump in? I wasn't sure if you wanted to say something here yet. Or... Uh, well, I wanted to say that I have read your piece, uh, Alex, and I think it is brilliant. <laughs> and it's brilliant because you fully attack Arndt for the banality of evil theme that she pro projected and that became so important and so uh, powerful uh, in trying to understand what the Nazis did. But you also uh, acknowledge, and especially using those tapes that were recorded uh, by that Dutch journalist or whoever he was in yeah. South America, um, that how clearly they show him as calculating and uh, evil and having, you know, at, at, you, at one point you cite that uh, if there were 10.3 million Jews in the world when the Nazis started and they could have murdered all 10.3 million of them, he would have been very pleased. Uh, those kinds of things are hugely important as a corrective to the way that uh, Arendt saw him in that trial. And so I think it's a brilliant uh, piece. And uh, I agree with you. And I also think, I mean, later on, maybe in our discussion, we'll get into questions about how people um, get to the point of accepting really harsh and brutal stereotypes about other people and harsh and brutal policies, um, and yet maybe still think they're being banal and uh, benign in doing it. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's try to get out the banality of uh, evil thesis. So what what do you so Al, either of you what 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 is it? What do you think uh, aren't what what just let's encapsulate or summarize? What does she mean by the banality of evil? I think that's for you, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's um, uh, it's a good question because um, she only uses the term on the last page of the book. Um, uh, so you're, you're, you're left to infer what she means uh, by it, um, by putting together what she says uh, throughout. Um, uh, and not all of the, the elements of uh, what might be put together in the banality of thesis are, are sort of fully congruous. Um, and in fact, um, some of it could be uh, helpfully separated and, and used, um, even if the thesis as a whole is, is problematic. So actually, uh, um, the line about um, uh, Eichmann's thoughtlessness, um, uh, 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 I mean, by that she doesn't really mean uh, thoughtless in, in the English sense of... of, of <laughs> Um, just uh, uh, neglecting to, to um, uh, calculate something, but um, uh, literally inability to think. Um, uh, 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 there is, um, there is in, in that element of the banality thesis, um, uh, 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 something to be recovered, I think, because um, uh, her argument is that 
Eichmann's disobedience was because um, the the will of the Führer had become a sort of higher law, um, a, a sort of categorical imperative of its own that allowed him to, to provide a sort of rationale for, for disobeying other commands. And um, th- that I think has some has some mileage in a more general uh, more general sense. Okay, um, let me. Well, let me try. Okay, so let me try to push the or force the banality, make it a stronger thesis. Because what I what I take uh, her to be saying there is that um, there's just a kind of the conscience. Right, what we expect is that people they're doing these horrible, evil deeds, and their conscience should bother them, right? Yeah. And her point is that conscience, or I'm sort of pulling this, extracting this, but I take her point to be that conscience is just sort of sociologically constructed, right? Yeah. So that you only get your bearings from the people around you. Now, she doesn't say this, but there's a saying, I have a friend that says that, you know, you're basically the average of the five people who you know most or who are closest to you. So you, they say whatever they think that sort of becomes your, your reference points and you sort of just go with the flow. And, and, and so I think what she, what she wants to say is that there was a, the Nazis created a, a, a totally deranged or anyway, an evil society. And within that society, you know, Eichmann had no conscience, his bearings, his reference points were just what was, what you were supposed to do in that, in, in that society. Uh, and that was it. He, he didn't have, any, there was no deeper, di- this is her claim, no deeper diabolical uh, intention. He's just doing his job. And in that, and, and doing your job in Nazi Germany meant killing Jews, right? So, um, so she, I think she's making a claim about. Um, she she pulls back from it, of course, when she got criticized. But I think she's making a claim about uh, the way conscience is socially constructed. Uh, um, let me see. I think I uh, and I'll. Uh, she's got. I've got a line, a quote here from the book. It says. Uh, if with the with the best will in the world, one cannot extract any diabolical or demonic profundity from Eichmann, as Sir Clem. He's just a dude, right? And this is what you do. He goes, uh, that's that's what you do in uh, Nazi Germany. Um, and then she's got this line here. It says, just as the law in civilized countries assumes that the voice of conscience tells everybody, thou shalt not kill, even though man's natural desires and inclinations may at times be murderous, so the law of Hitler's land demanded that the voice of conscience tell everybody, thou shalt kill, although organizers knew murder went against normal desires. So I think that's or that, that's the strong argument, uh, or strong version of the banality of evil. Um that's the bit which I think might be salvageable. And in fact, Stangneth in Eichmann before Jerusalem um, isolates that and, and sort of uh, uh, that strong version of banality and um, uh, uh, cites it uh, 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 almost as if it was an argument against the whole of the rest of the banality thesis. Um, she, she doesn't even um, credit Arendt with that line of argument, strangely. Um, I, I think the, the, the kind of... The, weaker bit of the banality thesis, weaker in, in terms both of its rhetorical punch and its conceptual uh, coherence, um, uh, is it, 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 in relation to this idea of um, Eichmann as uh, simply uh, a, 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 a fool, um, a, a, a ambitious bureaucrat, um, uh, an uncultured oaf, basically. Um, uh, I think that's the bit that, um, and and, and her sort of putting those things in as the explanation of his behaviour, I think that's the bit that is completely unsalvageable, bearing in mind what we know about his motivations. Right, she just doesn't seem to be an accurate description of Eichmann, because Eichmann seemed to have been really a rather committed uh, anti-Semite who was going to go above and beyond the duty, right? So it's almost, it's a very provocative argument about the limitations kind of of conscience, um, uh, but it doesn't seem to apply in, in, the, in the case of Eichmann. Uh, of course, Arndt knows this, and she tries to explain that counter evidence away. But anyway, I mean, I think that's right. It just doesn't really seem to explain Eichmann very well. And I mean, if you read Han Arndt, uh, you know, that report, she's not sympathetic to Eichmann at all. I mean, she, she uh, but she, she thinks she's just providing a description of, of what happened. And maybe some of the criticism uh, or pushback against Arndt's thesis may have to do with, I mean, it, it, she's not excu- excusing Eichmann, but you could read her argument in a way that sort of raises questions about, well, how do we evaluate people? Um, 
who do bad things if they're in a totally evil environment. They're just regular people. And they're, you know, you can push it in a very sort of cultural relativist direction. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of my ways of sort of critiquing uh, Arendt in that is, is to put Eichmann in context. And he, you know, he joined um, the SS uh, in 1932, so before the Nazi rise to power, he spent his early years producing uh, manuals um, uh, to sort of uh, uh, explain the, the, the danger posed by Jury um, as, uh, as he saw it. So he wasn't someone whose conscience had been distorted so much as someone who was busy distorting other people's <laughs> consciousness. All right. So good. So, okay. So let's, but let's leave that thesis or aren't strong sort of thesis about the way people operate. Uh, I mean, that, that is a kind of explanation of what makes people cooperate in evil. Well, they just end up in an environment where it's being evil is sort of taken for granted or natural. Um, so let's just leave that floating around a little bit. And then maybe Robert, then I, because you've, Robert, you've looked at this question, you know, quite a bit. You just, you wrote a book on uh, complicity in the Holocaust and which really has to do with, which I think that your argument would kind of push against arts. So let me just, maybe we could just summarize or talk a little bit about your, your, your argument or what you think is the case based in that, in that book. Okay. Um, I think I have to begin with a couple of, um, preliminaries about how I got into this field at all. And that is that I wanted to do German history. I went to the University of London, actually London School of Economics, to do my PhD. I proposed that I would write about professors in Germany and their response to the Nazi regime, and particularly professors of theology. And the background for that is that my father was a Lutheran pastor, his two brothers were Lutheran pastors, two of my four brothers are Lutheran pastors, and I was surrounded by all of this, but I wasn't going to be a pastor, I wanted to be a historian. And in looking at this, I went into that study into that research with the assumption that professors at German universities would have been smart enough and knowledgeable enough and uh, clear enough that they would have seen Adolf Hitler with his eighth grade education as not exactly the intellectual leader they needed and they would have been critical. Uh, and then additionally, that uh, professors of theology, if they were committed Christians, if they were accepting the Christian ethic, that they should have seen the absolute horrors against uh, conscience that were perpetrated by the Nazis, not just in the Holocaust, but uh, from um, Hitler's first writings and then from 1933 on. And uh, what I discovered uh, was that if I was going to write about theologians in Germany or the churches, uh, what I was seeing is most of them, and the Protestant churches is what I dealt with, but the Catholic isn't that much different, that most of them were very enthusiastic supporters of the Nazi state. In fact, uh, when Hitler came to power, he never won a majority vote in Germany, but he uh, won about 40%, which allowed him to become the chancellor in January of 33. And the voting base that he relied upon, the only group in Germany that put him into office were German Protestants, especially the particularly pious Protestants in northern Germany, Schleswig-Holstein, people, places like that, uh, who gave him vast majorities and gave him the the voting basis that he needed to come to power. So that the Christians I discovered included people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I'd heard about when I was a teenager and had admired. And uh, Martin Niemöller is fairly famous for being an opponent of uh, Hitler. On the other hand, he voted for Hitler. He and his brother both were members of the Nazi party, and uh, they'd been enthusiastic for Hitler's policies until there were some inter-church thing, intra things that uh, offended him. In any case, my conclusion in that in my first book with Theologians Under Hitler was that uh, really intelligent and seemingly uh, honest Christians and devoted Christians uh, 
decided that Hitler was wonderful, that he was good for Germany, and they supported him enthusiastically. Uh, and in the case of uh, at least two of the three professors I focused on, they supported him enthusiastically through 1945. And for a man named uh, Emanuel Hirsch, uh, almost certainly remained a Nazi until he died in 1972. Uh, then we get to... Uh, this question of complicity in the Holocaust, which is what you asked me about. And I would argue that uh, educated people in Germany, Christians in Germany, Catholics and Protestants in Germany were prepared in 1933 for all sorts of reasons. World War I, they were very bitter about Germany's losses and uh, the tremendous hardship inflicted upon Germany uh, without sort of looking and saying, well, maybe the war was our fault or looking into it more carefully. Uh, but there was a great bitterness and a great incredible national patriotism uh, that was true among Germans in general. And uh, then there was also a great deal of anti-Semitism in Germany and uh, the easy matter of taking this less than 1% of the German population of Jews uh, and blaming them for all of the things you didn't like about modern culture or the directions that it had taken. Uh, and there was also a strong anti-communist uh, basis in all of this. In any case, uh, what I have argued in Complicity in the Holocaust is that uh, because of these preconditions, in German culture, and I guess we could call them sociological here, uh, the kind of world they lived in, uh, there were all sorts of people in Germany, including professors at universities and, in, and including uh, the Protestant clergy throughout Germany and Catholic clergy, that thought that the, in, the national re, uh, restructuring of Germany under Hitler, bringing back German pride again, uh, getting the uh, prostitution and other uh, moral breakdowns of 1920s Germany, Weimar Germany, under control and putting those police people in their place. Uh, it was believed that Hitler was a Christian leader who believed in God and who uh, supported the churches and that he was also a wonderful national leader who would make Germany strong again. And uh, this, to my way of thinking, made them totally blind to the iniquity of the regime and the violation of all of our modern assumptions about a democratic society, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Um, and especially uh, the rights of citizens and uh, the rights of Jews to live a life and not be thrown out of their jobs and ultimately hounded to their death. So uh, I see a lot of complicity here, uh, and I see elements of the German culture, which I was prepared to admire in my early 20s, uh, which uh, I believe went really far astray. And I also, I don't want to carry this too far, but I think it took Germany at least 30 or 40 years before Germans were willing to look carefully at that past, at their own uh, complicity in that past, and begin to try to understand what had gone wrong and look at the history more honestly, which, by the way, I think Germans have done tremendously well in the last 30 years or so. Okay, so did you want to say something, Alex? If I just ask Robert a question, um, the impression I got from reading your uh, uh, your work was that you were suspicious, or at least questioning, of the assertion that the totalitarian turn was needed um, to yeah. uh, I, 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 I either make people into Nazis, broadly speaking, ideologically, um, uh, or um, to make them amenable to cooperation in, in genocide. You didn't see the, um, uh, 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 the, uh, the political party's um, use of the state to impose its ideology as the fundamental precondition for, what's, for what happened. Exactly. I agree with what you've just said. The totalitarianism wasn't necessary to get them to that point. 
which is why I say I, I have some caveats about how, what I wrote in my, my piece some, some weeks back. Um, uh, and I, I think that totalitarian uh, context uh, is um, uh, relevant in, in, in uh, certain instances to, 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 um, to people's uh, complicity in evil or at least willingness to go along with evil. Um, but whether it applies in these specific historic conditions is another matter. But sorry, yes, carry on. Yeah. Okay, well, so, uh, I mean, one thing about totalitarianism, I don't know, we'll see what you think, Robert. I mean, so there, there are, obviously, there was a sort of receptiveness to Hitler's message, broad receptiveness, uh, uh, which made, which blinded people. So uh, the, the one question might be, um, was there a point where the regime, had, Hitler had become so, uh, whether it was totalitarian or just very oppressive and authoritarian, where if people started to, oops, we made a mistake, uh, uh, this, is, this is a bad, we shouldn't be doing this. At some point it was impossible to pull back or, or nearly impossible because of the, uh, the totalitarian or quasi-totalitarian uh, character of the regime. I mean, do you, uh, so my question is, uh, is it possible that this sort of totalitarian dimension um, came into play you know, later than at the beginning? Or? Um, it isn't something I've looked at directly, but I've looked at it indirectly, and I will try to answer your question with a couple of examples. Um, in the post-war world, all of the Germans were anti-Nazi, but they had to hide it. Uh, they didn't like the regime. They knew it was awful. It was a monstrous totalitarian regime that had made their lives impossible. They could not, uh, re- they could not uh, work against it or say what they really thought, or they would be so harshly punished. And... Um, the my belief is that the enthusiasm for the Nazi state from 1933 on was very strong, and that um, the post-war sense of the criminality of the regime. In fact, uh, the uh, Nuremberg trials and the discovery, the the absolutely brutal evidence uh, of the death camps and the treatment and so forth that was laid out before the world, um, there was a sense among uh, post-war Germans that they, of course, they had opposed this. Of course, they had not been supporting of this and so forth. And one of the most, and I'm just going to jump to a second example now, one of the most uh, constant themes was if we hadn't gone along, we would have been shot. If we hadn't shot the Jews, if we hadn't killed the Jews, we would have been shot, those kinds of things. And uh, in the post-war trials in Germany, when people were accused of crimes, of, of you know, participating in the murder of Jews or other Nazi crimes, uh, they always tried to argue that if they hadn't done, they would have been shot themselves. Uh, and the attorneys representing all of these figures in post-war trials searched and searched and searched for an example of when someone was shot for refusing to shoot a Jew or when someone was severely punished for refusing to shoot a Jew. And in fact, there's not a single case that any attorney could find to prove that Jews, that Germans were forced into this behavior against their will and under extreme duress. Now, to me, that suggests that there was a great deal of complicity, a great deal of uh, participation, and a great deal of enthusiasm for what Hitler was doing for Germany, even if there were mixed feelings, and there certainly were some people who were critical, and there are, there are small little groups in both the Catholic and Protestant churches, and also uh, in the, almost none in, uh, the, in academia, uh, but there are some groups you can find, heroic groups, who protected Jews, who hid Jews, who tried to help Jews escape, who uh, opposed the regime, uh, even in uh, work to get rid of Hitler, and the... Uh, in the 1944 uh, plot and so forth. But 
that for most Germans, this post-war thought that they hadn't really been Nazis or that they had to be coerced into it. I think it's highly exaggerated, and the evidence shows a lot more willingness and complicity and, uh, you know, nationalism and support for the nation and and the greatness of Germany under Hitler, uh, building the Autobahn and recovering the economy and making Germany really a powerful force in the world again. I think all of those things were motivations, and they do not require totalitarian force or the Gestapo. If I can keep going on, I'll mention one other thing. Uh, The best historian of the Gestapo in recent years has described how there were only 10,000 Gestapo agents, and most of the work of the Gestapo was done by ordinary citizens telling stories on their neighbors and telling the Gestapo who to look up and who to look for, uh, who was uh, not fully along with the program and who should be arrested and so forth. So that it wasn't a police state the way we can often think of it, but that it was a state in which the overwhelming support of the population was there for the government, and uh, along with maybe some German ideas of obedience, etc., and that it wasn't this uh, tremendous fear of a totalitarian regime and what could happen to you if you uh, went out of line. I think that's tremendously exaggerated. Okay, so let me good. So let me uh, let, let me try to push back here, uh, and okay. I'm going to try to represent the Hannah Arndt uh, thesis. Okay, um, so and and, and uh, you know I you, this example of the that you mentioned about the um, uh, you know when nobody really being punished for not shooting Jews, they thought they they you know and so forth, which yeah. is I think is a telling example. What it called to mind, you mentioned that in your book, and what it called to mind, I don't know. If, if either of you read War and Peace, but if you read War and Peace at the end, towards the end, uh, Tolstoy has this, uh, he tells the story of an execution. So the Napoleon has occupied, um, uh, you know, Moscow, or I forget exactly where it's going on. And there's execution. And he describes, he describes it in this, everyone becomes like a robot. I mean, it's, I'm, and they just go and they just going along with it. It's almost like they're not free agents. They're just going along. And he's got this description, which as I read it, that the point of it is he's trying to describe, Tolstoy's trying to describe how people sort of lose their autonomous agency. They just are going along mindlessly. So now uh, if we were to think about the role of uh, coercion or force or totalitarianism and say creating the, uh, you know, what Nazism, um, it's probably true that you know, people weren't living under the, it, it, the the violence wasn't so overt, right? So that, of course, it could be. It could, there was always a threat, and it did happen. You know, there were people who were, but it was it was it, it creates a climate where where the the, the threat of violence is um, is real, okay, even if it's unnaturalized, and that creates a kind of sociology or sociological environment where everybody's just sort of going along, sort of mindlessly. Um, uh, so not necessarily because they are, uh, so I remember I'm defending Hannah Arndt here, the, the Arndt yeah. not necessarily because they are, uh, are, um, evil or, uh, rapidly anti-Semitic or however you want to say it, but just because they just go in with the flow. There's like, it's like you're in a, you're a fish in water and you're just flowing along and, and uh, the, the totalitarian dynamic is important for creating sort of the, the I don't we call it the riverbed that the water can flow in. What do you either of you? What do you think about this or what I've said? Um, if, if, if I may, I, I, I think what, what you're talking about there is 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 a, a, a move to conformism, um, and of course that can be created without the threat of, of violence, just by the creation of a sociological, socio-cultural norm by um, uh, a, a, a mono. Um, a monovocal um, uh, 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 cultural um, milieu by by um, uh, uh, all sources of information pushing the same uh, cultural uh, norm and precept and ideological precept, which is also a, uh, arguably a feature of a totalitarian dynamic where that norm is is backed by the resources and uh, approval of the state. Um, uh, so I would be interested to. Uh, 
hear Robert's view on 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 that that dimension of, of uh, totalitarianism and its impact. Uh, whether he thinks it, it that sort of softer version of totalitarianism uh, uh, could be said to have had an impact in the situation or not. I agree with what you're saying, and I think that makes a lot of sense. That a softer totalitarianism there there was always the recognition uh, that the Gestapo was there, that the SS was there. And that the Nazi regime, that uh, the enthusiastic Nazis in the stormtroopers or in the SS uh, and members of the regime uh, were willing to use harsh measures. And in fact, they were proud of it. And uh, they gloried in the idea that they were tough and uh, they were going to use harsh measures against Germany's enemies to make Germany strong again. Uh, so there's an awareness of that. And... Uh, when I was describing a moment ago that I think there were only a few Germans who really uh, opposed that in a serious way and worked against it and so forth, um, it could well be that those numbers were smaller because of popular opinion, because of the threat of force and the willingness to go along. Uh, and the way the education system worked and so forth. What we look at in retrospect is how appalling it was the things that were being taught in the educational system, the Nazi propaganda, as we would see it now, uh, and of course the racism. And, uh, uh, and yet the racial science that the Nazis were using uh, was being used in Western countries uh, when we come up a against questions about what to do with um, people who are uh, either mentally inhibited or otherwise uh, deformed and how to deal with that. And uh, we got into some very harsh measures in our own country uh, by the early 20th century that were a little bit uh, like the Nazis in, in the treatment of human beings. And uh, so trying to draw a very clear, bright line between what's acceptable and what isn't always varies culture by culture. And in Nazi Germany, with a general sense that Germany was doing well again, you know, the economy was booming uh, and so forth, that a general sense that this is good and uh, lingering doubts or nagging doubts or saying, you know, my parents back in the 1920s wouldn't have liked to see uh, the whole culture shut down and newspapers under control of the government and things like that. Uh, but it's making Germany a pretty good place right now. Uh, I think that there's a very complicated set of uh, forces that created the German populace in the Nazi period. And I simply see them as very ready to accept uh, Hitler and the Nazi ideology and Hitler's successes, um, even if they weren't thoroughly supportive of them or might have had uh, doubts in their head. And then the fact that everyone else is doing it uh, would have been an important factor. So can I, I don't know where the word totalitarian fits into that, yeah. um, how important it is. Let me try to use, Alex, maybe can, uh, you can tell me, try to correct me if I make a mistake here. So let, let's talk a little bit about, because my area, I've done the research on uh, um, sort of the communism in Hungary. And I, you know, I did a book. On right. So I, I looked at, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, when, you know, researching what was going on or how people were reacting uh, to sort of totalitarianism in, in, in Hungary. Uh, and of course, there's some dip, big differences, right? Because um, communism was imposed on uh, Hungary, right. where it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't arise out of the, it wasn't chosen by the Hungarian people. Uh, but what I think, uh, when you, when, if you look at the, so what happens once there's a sort of communist regime or Soviet regime is imposed, you find that, you know, there, there are a few people who won't cooperate, who are very brave. There are a handful of heroes. You find, suddenly you find all sorts of people. I mean, they could not have been communists, you know, believing communists, but suddenly they're communists uh, and they're going along with it. And, and they're either going along with it because they're afraid or because uh, they're opportunists or and they have various, it's hard to sort of identify in most cases their individual motivation, but they just sort of changed. These, you know, somebody who was a, who was a, um, 
a, fa- a quasi-fascist, or I mean, I don't want to call the Horty the interwar period in Hungary, but but someone who yeah. was a supporter of Horty and this basically, you know, Nazi allied regime was suddenly a, or pretty quickly became a supporter of the communist regime. And they they did, they did just flipped around uh, either because they wanted to get advance their careers or they just wanted to survive or, or whatever, uh, or they were opportunists. But so it created a kind of environment. And so you have, you know, you have some people who are just really unscrupulous, sort of repulsive kind of people, collaborators. You have a few handful that are, are um, noble resistors that you admire, but not very many. And then the most of the people in the middle are just sort of, you know, they're not heroes. They're definitely not heroes. And, but you you don't know what to say. They're just kind of going along. So they also comply. They also become complicit in this broad way, um, even though it didn't um, they didn't choose it. Uh, and it, to me, that I don't know what the lesson is, honestly, but to me, it has a lot to do with once the environment is created, uh, people are just going to act. The majority of people are just they're like fish in water. They're just going to go in the direction that the, the river is flowing. I don't know. Just to jump in um, uh, on on the kind of fish in water thing, um, uh, uh, there's an example from my own family's history that I always um, call to mind uh, when this this topic comes up. And so, I mean, my my grandparents were internal and then external dissidents um, and and very active resistors. But um, uh, when my dad came back in the 70s during detente, um, he he was having a conversation with his uncle Lotzi about Orwell's 1984, which was a sort of banned book, uh, um, uh, which Lotzi had somehow got hold of and read. And just to put this in, in context, Lotzi was a cousin of my grandfather, married to a cousin of my grandmother. Very confusing. Um, uh, and, and, and Lotzi, you know, Lotzi had narrowly survived. Uh, 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 being deported to Auschwitz in 44. Um, his two brothers and his parents had not come back. He was lucky he did come back. Um, and then he'd lived through the terror years of 1948 to 53 and uh, 1956 to, uh, the, you know, kind of not circa 1960. Um, uh, 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 and when Dad was talking to Lotzi in the early 1970s about Orwell's 1984, Lotzi said without a hint of irony. Yes, it's such a frightening book. Thank goodness it couldn't happen here. Um, <laughs> and my, my, yeah. my, my father thumped the table and said, but Uncle Lotzi, it has happened all around you. Um, and so I don't want to uh, ever underestimate the power of the kind of... Um, uh, 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 totalitarianism understood as um, uh, 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 an ideological, uh, an ideology possessed of state power, able to shape the cultural sphere, because it could uh, call someone even like Lotzi, who spoke three languages um, uh, and was widely cultured and had experienced and experienced awful things, to discount his own experience. Um, what, what I find interesting in, in, in relation to, to Robert's book is that you show that people who um, had come to maturity and were very cultured, um, uh, 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 in some cases at least, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, uh, went along with the most dreadful things, um, uh, having not had their formative, you know, their, their formative uh, intellectual years in the period post thirty three, and that's the thing that kind of struck me. Um, and in particular, what you say or cite uh, in, in Browning's research about Reserve Police Battalion 101, where it, yeah. it, you can show that it's mature men who who were not sort of green and susceptible um, at the at the time of uh, uh, the consolidation of the Third Reich, who nonetheless go along with what what's happened. Um, and that, that, to shoot and kill, and they do. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. Okay. Good. So, Robert, what do you? Uh, so, there are various ways that that's sort of the theme in, in uh, Robert and the theologians under Hitler. There's various ways to try to account for that. Um, so, what what was? Uh, you know, I don't know what the right ex, right account is. Um, uh, I would they, like to interject yeah. here, if I may. Yeah. Yes. 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 Uh, you can you can keep phrasing your question, but uh, I, in my own view. Uh-huh. There's an extraordinary difference between post-war communist regimes in Eastern Europe in the Soviet zone <laughs> and Germany in the 1930s, 
And uh, the ways in which churches responded or Christians responded to Hitler, um, there's, there's one quote that I can never get away from where this really brilliant man, he was the great Kierkegaard scholar in Germany, Emanuel Hirsch, and he was dis- defending Nazi Germany and Hitler and saying, no other nation than ours has a leader who could end his speech to the Reichstag with a prayer. And that is so meaningful to us. And for people to think that, for a, for a really smart man to think that Hitler was somehow religious uh, is just astonishing to me. And that this was, um, you know, that, that he was willing to accept that sort of thing. But in Germany, when Germany left behind the Weimar Republic, the Roaring Twenties, accepted Hitler's extreme nationalism and his project for rebuilding Germany, of course, along military lines and with the outcome of war and all the horrors that that brought. But everything about that tended to be within the context of at least a century, maybe centuries of German history, uh, of religious traditions, of the relationship to the state, of the humiliation and also the pain of World War One for Germany, uh, losing that war and being uh, pushed around by the Treaty of Versailles. And in all of these ways, there's this tremendous force for unity within Germany across political lines uh, and uh, with the churches in general supporting a very patriotic what is good for Germany is good for us, it's good for the world uh, point of view. And all of that, I think, helped to make the Nazi regime acceptable in ways that I've tried to describe now. Uh, In Hungary, there was an invasion that brought a Soviet regime that was not it did not grow out of say the church's attitudes in Hungary or the popular attitudes in Hungary or the wishes of the Hungarians but it was imposed upon them and also the Nazis did pretend to be pro-Christian the 24th part of their Nazi program was a belief in uh, positive Christianity so they always stood for Christianity and uh, and tried to pretend that, in fact, they filled up the churches. And cre- more people attended church in 1933 and 34 than had been in the 1920s wearing their SA uniforms and so forth. And there's nothing like that in the Soviet uh, domination of Eastern Europe, where it didn't come out of... Uh, the churches. It didn't come out of local politics. It didn't come out of that local nationalism. It came out of um, Soviet drive to uh, dominate and introduce a, a different type of regime. And somehow I think that when we look at um, uh, totalitarianism, um, there's a big difference between the totalitarian regimes that dominated Eastern European countries and the Nazi regime that dominated Germany, uh, just because of the origins and because of the nature of that regime in relationship to the local people. Now, I don't know enough about Hungary or about the areas where both of you are uh, very fluent to know if that makes sense, but it seems to me like a a huge difference to be kept in mind. Well, okay, so one, one, I think, I mean, it's clearly the case, right, that um, uh, Nazi, Hitler came to power with, you know, broad support in Germany, that, it, and so it's yeah. either, it's sort of organic or natural, and and that yeah. is a very no, important, or that's a very noted, a notable difference between what happened in Eastern Europe and, and Hungary and what happened in Germany. Okay, so let me, but let me, I'm gonna, still going to try to push back here. So, um, okay. uh Okay, the first question would be, uh, when we're thinking about Germany, of course, these people who are, you know, born in whatever, and in, in, in 18, whatever, in, in Germany, they're not believers in liberal democracy, right? They have a certain, uh, right, right. they have, they're coming from a different you know, sort of cultural background, and they, and then, and so forth. Um, and so they had a lot of, you know, grievances against Weimar Germany. And, you know, many of those grievances were kind of legitimate, okay? Uh, so the question then would be, 
uh, how much of that stuff is in is sort of inextricable from what became Nazism, and how much of that is uh, that background that the sort of German. Uh, you know, what do we call it? Uh, you know, Bismarck or the, the, the German imp- or first German empire, you know, background, how much of that is, you know, separable, right? So in other words, is it, is it like a necessary connection that from, um, from that sort of, I don't know, conservative German 19th century German mindset uh, to, to Hitler and Nazism or, I mean, is it an inevitable connection or is it just sort of kind of an accidental connection that was created by, you know, at least partly by totalitarianism, although that probably doesn't explain everything. So that would be the, the question, the first question. And then I would just make a point about if I think about uh, an, uh, communism in Hungary uh, in those first years in the Stalinist period, the the parallels between the similarities between what was going on in the Hungarian churches and and the stuff with the with the German Christians in Germany and the attempts to reorganize the churches in in Germany and then and they're, they're very similar, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. in those early periods and the, the you find people making very strong theological arguments in favor of communism. I mean, I, you could pull in you know, a Stalin, the red army is the agent of God and et cetera. Uh, it's the same story, very similar story in the beginning. Uh, all, all of a sudden there were communists or, or you know, I don't know. Uh, and and, and uh, to me that suggests just, I mean, I don't know if it's proof, but that suggests that the environment, the, the political environment, uh, uh, is a totalitarian or whatever you want to call it, that highly authoritarian, a totalitarian environment is responsible for a lot. I mean, I can't be responsible for everything, but it explains a lot of people's behavior because they are adjusting to uh, a bad environment. Um, so anyway, that would be the way I, would, I might push back and say, well, anyway, that's the way I would push back. I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that, either of you. Um, I, I would say, I, I do know what you mean because there are uh, um, documents which are horrific to read now from the early communist period in Hungary in terms of Christian justifications for um, uh, uh, the uh, endorsement of this, uh, of, um, of the new regime. And uh, But there were also, there was also much more active persecution in the early uh, phase as well in terms of um, the dissolution of religious houses, the confiscation of church property, um, the, the, the internment, you know, from very early on the internment of, of Christian clergy. So it, it's not quite uh, mm-hmm. analogy with, 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 uh, with the Third Reich. Um, uh, I, I mean, the... Um, uh, but I think there is a a, a question to be asked uh, as to why um, kind of the totalitarian why, for want of a better word, the totalitarian methods of um, uh, uh, post-communist. Uh, sorry, not post-communist, post-war um, communist countries uh, seem to have been um, both more necessary and more effective in shaping uh, popular consciousness. Um, uh, 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 this seems now to be the case uh, uh, with, with 1930s Germany, both in terms of necessity and, and effect. And I don't know the answer to that, and I think it's, it's just worth further exploration. Could you just repeat that question? I didn't... Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, I, I, I you forgot well, it. So. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> I, I think there is a um, a question to be asked, or something to be explored as to why. I think Robert has explained why totalitarian methods were more necessary to achieve um, certain ends in um, post uh, post war communist bloc countries. Than they were in in Germany. Um, uh, he's shown that, uh, or, or seems to show that, a lot could be achieved without um, uh, 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 um, totalitarianism being a necessary condition uh, for for the way people acted. Um, uh, what I don't yet understand, and which I think is worth further exploration, is why um, the methods used uh, in, in in shaping consciousness in uh, post-war communist countries seem to have been more effective in terms of the warping of sensibility 
um, uh, uh, than they were in in Germany. Um, uh, bearing in mind they they, they um, weren't the necessary precondition for what happened. In so, what do you mean by that? By the warping? You mean that? What what, what is what? How has the consciousness been changed more effectively by? I, I, I'm thinking of, for instance, the level of self-deception um, that somebody like my uncle or great uncle could could live with. So, um, how uh, uh, you know how uh, and how? Uh, why was it that 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 um, communist methods could could achieve that degree of um, uh, dislocation of reference points? Um, okay, so that. Well, go ahead. That relates to the denazification, I think. I don't know. Uh, like in Germany, what happened? Well, I don't know. What, do you have a thought, Robert? Well, my my thought in response, without getting to denazification yeah. yet, um, I think that there was a willingness in Germany that was rooted in people's own political ideas and their goals for Germany and their nationalism and and also all that residual anti-Semitism. Uh, Hitler very effectively used hatred of Jews uh, as a fundamental premise, and not all Germans hated Jews as much as he did, but most of them, most of them were prejudiced enough to accept what was happening. Um, and so there's all these all these preconditions that made it a more natural development for the Nazi regime to dominate Germans than the Soviet troops to come into Eastern Bloc countries and uh, and operatiks coming in and and dominating the politics of those countries. Uh, and so I think it was simply a more difficult and more wrenching process, which was obviously based upon brute force. And uh, I suspect that those various uh, church leaders um, and uh, bishops and figures who started, this is interesting, I don't know enough about this, but who started uh, saying how wonderful communism was within the tradition of Jesus and uh, and the Christian tradition, uh, you know, there are ways to say that, you know, the, of equality and some of the communist ideals. But um, the, the percentage of people who were willing to switch their entire outlook on life and their entire uh, view of life uh, in order to cooperate with the new government of Hungary or uh, East Germany or whatever it might have been, uh, the wrenching change seems to me really great in post-war Europe. Uh, and I don't see that wrenching change in Germany under the Nazis. And so somehow uh, the methods of the communist regimes were more effective. Uh, perhaps the level of terror was greater. Uh, the threats of uh, non-cooperation were greater. Um, and of course, the Nazis did practice all of these things. They did develop all those concentration camps, and they did send people away. Uh, but I think that uh, there's a huge difference in the origins of Nazi Germany compared to the origins of um, communist Eastern Europe. And it, it must also be said that the communists had longer to do it. Um, That's true, uh, yeah. Uh, and um, by the time my dad was having, you know, that conversation with his uncle, they'd been there, you know, in there'd been a communist regime in, in place for getting on for a quarter of a century. And and yeah. earlier there had been much more active resistance. Um, obviously in, in the case of you know the 1956 revolution and so on. So um sure. it, 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 it one perhaps isn't comparing like with like. Um exactly. yeah. Yeah. So let me, I think we're going to, we're getting close to time, but here, let me, um, let me just quickly, okay, so let's think about, uh, we know about Hungary, uh, um, sort of the post-communist Hungary, right? And of course, it's true, communism was much longer and it changed in its character. It wasn't this, you know, terrifying totalitarian regime for the whole length of time. Um, but Hungary has done a very bad job of sorting through it's it's past and uh, the communist past and and confronting the ways in which people were uh, com complicit um, and there's probably you know there's political reasons for this there's various reasons for this but uh, nobody or hardly anybody is ever held to account or had forced to sort of account for their actions and part of the 
I, I think that it's probably the fundamental explanation has to just do with the political actors don't want this to happen. But there's always this argument that, well, you know, this wasn't we didn't we were just occupied. Right. The Soviets were here uh, and we had to get along in this society and which is true. OK, but that, that obscures the fact that that the different people got along better than others and were more willing to to do, you know, bad things or compromise themselves and others. It's not that everybody was the same, although there was this environment, you know, uh, basically coercive environment. And so I think that it's it's very hard to sort through for Hungary its its past to separate out the element of individual human agency and responsibility from the imposed social context, um, which has I think really been damaging for Hungary uh, basically uh, uh, since then. I, I think, but part of the way that Hungary has become, you know, Viktor Orban has been able to do the things that he's been able to do. I mean, that's not every, all, the whole reason, but this failure to reckon with the past creates a. a sort of a, a sense of uh, dissatisfaction and anger and grievance, which which Orban can, was able to take advantage of early on. Um, so, let, but I want to ask then a little bit, uh, Robert, because you defend denazification in, in the book. So maybe you could mm-hmm. uh, just talk a little bit about that and, and uh, explain your defense. Okay, my defense is, first of all, uh, denazification created the sense that Nazification had been a bad idea, that it was wrong, uh, that it was criminal, that it was uh, it violated uh, all sorts of important human values and so forth. And uh, the general condemnation of Germany from outside uh, was withering for the German people. And uh, they there was a way in which uh, denazification allowed First of all, the Allies, but then it was taken over by the Germans. Um, the Soviet Union, Soviet zone was different, but the three Western zones, and uh, it was a complicated process which was botched in many ways, and it was fairly harsh to begin with, and then it got softer and softer, and finally, by uh, 1950, 1951, uh, almost no one who had been impacted by denazification, lost their job and so forth, didn't have a chance to get back into the good graces. There were very few uh, professors. I mostly look at universities, and there were very few uh, professors at German universities, no matter how Nazi they had been, who were permanently removed from the professoriate. Most of them got back in, certainly by the early 1950s. And uh, what I argue, uh, my underlying argument for uh, the value of denazification is that this sense that the Nazis were evil, that the policies were evil, were so was so strong that almost no one wanted to say, uh, "I was a Nazi and I'm very happy I was a Nazi." That that just didn't happen. It was that people did it in their basements when they got together and drank beer and and maybe sang the host vessel lead or something. But uh, but in general, in German culture, uh, there was no pride in having been a Nazi. There was massive denial. I was never a Nazi, or I always hated them. And uh, and then Germany had, of course, the Wirtschaftswunder, where they took off economically and became a very West Germany became a very successful nation. And I think people were willing to um, say. The Nazi period was a terrible mistake. Uh, Hitler was awful, and uh, we're very glad to be rid of it. And in fact, although there's always been uh, there have always been subgroups of neo-Nazis, and now their voting bloc has grown a little bit in the complications of today's Europe. But um, but I think that uh, Germany got rid of the Nazi bacillus quite effectively at least partly because the Allies enforced denazification on them. And even though it was really, uh, it was very filled with problems and injustices and uh, and then a, this gradual weakening where almost no one was ever considered having to be a real Nazi and so forth, uh, there's a lot of uh, disingenuousness and misinformation and so forth. But I think that the uh, curse on Nazism 
was very strong in Germany, and it's led to a willingness in Germany in the last generation, or a little bit more, uh, to teach about it in schools, to face up to it honestly, to be critical of all the different institutions in Germany that uh, supported the Nazi regime. Uh, I think that in that sense, Germany's recovery from the Nazi regime benefited from denazification, even though almost everyone on both sides was critical at the time. The Many people in the West saying it wasn't strong enough. Uh, most people in Germany saying it was too harsh and, uh, you know, what could we do and so forth. So, so it's a fraught process, but I think it had a beneficial outcome. Regarding denazification, um, so I don't really know the details of it in Germany. I know it's highly controversial. I guess my, I had sort of had two thoughts. One is, given how complicated <clears throat> these issues are, it, it's hard for me to imagine how a, a process, a sort of a judicial or administrative process of denazification could be done you know, without lots of problems, without being very problematic, without making mistakes one way or the other. So I can see how, um, I can see, imagine how there'd be sources of, of, of criticism. On the other hand, I think looking at, and I'm thinking of the example of Hungary, I think the failure to sort of confront, you know, the issues of the past uh, is Damaging to public order. State security archives properly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You can't even get. You can't. We still can't even fully research in, in Hungary. Really? This stuff. No, no, I didn't know that. And a lot of, of course, the stuff's been, you know, it's lost or destroyed. I mean, and the government comes in, they. There, there was a good cleansing of the archives. Yeah, a good cleansing of the archives. We'll never know everything, mm. Uh, mm. and and the failure to do that to confront the past even in a very imperfect in, in way, um, has consequences because it creates an environment or an expectation that this is nothing has any consequences. I mean, if there's been sort of great injustice, there has to be some reckoning. Uh, and I think the failure to do that is very, very uh, coercive. And, 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 I, and when communism first fell, um, you know, there was an argument or discussion. What are we going to do? Because there was a communist, the reformed communists are, run, are actually in power. And there was a kind of view, a kind of consensus view that, well, we should let that go uh, and just focus on the future. And it's just a rational, there's an argument there, okay? Because how are you going to sort through that difficult past? But on the other hand, the failure to do, to, to, I think I think it's a mistake because the failure to, to confront and deal with those uh, issues cre- is coercive. Of, of I don't know what we call it public order and it, it makes it, it makes it much worse. So, um, okay. So I may have to because we run over. I enjoyed this conversation is uh, learning from both of you guys, um, and I want to thank you for for coming on my podcast. Uh, I'd also like to thank my my listeners. There's um, there's one who seems to be a very faithful listener in Barcelona, Spain, and I want to thank you for listening to all of my episodes. <laughs> Uh, and uh, whoever you are. And in fact, if you wanted to uh, ever want to send, uh, you know, every, my webpage, hdavidbear, B-A-E-R.com has a, a separate page for each episode. If you want to go there and make some comments or ever send me an email, dbear, B-A-E-R, at tlu.edu, I'd be happy to hear from you. And that's true for all my listeners. Um, uh, so thank you for listening. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And so to everybody, uh, listeners, uh, until next time, uh, ciao. Thank you.